Um, we looked the very first week at Colossians chapter 1. I'll reread these texts just because they're so important. Um, Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, this takes us beyond the babe in Bethlehem. And it says that this God who became human flesh is the preeminent Lord over everything. And then last week we spent time in Hebrews chapter 1. Those first three verses of the book of Hebrews. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then we have this resume of who the Son of God is when He came to earth, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so again, this, these, these verses remind us that Jesus is better. He is God's supreme revelation. This takes us well beyond Right? The manger scene. It takes us beyond the stable, beyond the shepherds. Today we consider a slightly different take on our key question. And the key question for this whole series has been, who is the Christ of Christmas? Who is the, as we celebrate who Jesus is during Christmas, who is this Christ we are celebrating? As these first century authors understood who Jesus is. And in this letter that we're reading today, we learn that the Son of God became human, but the role that he adopts as a human is not what we might expect if we're writing the story. If we're writing the script, the role that he takes is very different than what we might imagine. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 5 to kind of put it in, in our context here. So Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this first century letter was written to the Philippian church. If you want to do a deeper dive on the Philippian church and what they were about, you can go back onto our website or our app and find our Philippians series. Uh, it's just a few series ago. And I think the very first message in that series, I kind of laid out the context of the Philippian church. Uh, what we do know is it was a letter written from jail by Paul the Apostle. He founded this church on one of his missionary journeys. This letter is filled with encouragement. Uh, the central idea of the entire letter is this idea of joy. Now, the last two letters we were looking at were believers who were, um, were, were contemplating walking away from their faith. 
Uh, they were being threatened. They were um, enduring false teaching. And Paul wrote the book of Colossians, and the Hebrew writer wrote the book of Hebrews uh, to encourage those Christians to continue on in their faith. That's not what's going on in Philippians. Now, this is kind of a grassroots letter. Uh, the immediate context that we read is Paul saying, have the mind of Christ. Be humble and prioritize the others. Seek unity. In other words, this historic theology-defining, community-shaping statement in the first letter about who Jesus is is found amid this gospel advice for the church amid everyday living. In your everyday living, do not forget who Jesus is. In this context of what understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus, don't forget who Jesus is. Specifically, don't forget the type of person he became when he took on human flesh. His incarnation helps us recognize what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I want to call attention to just two primary roles that Paul highlights um, in this passage. And again, these are center circle issues. I've explained that in the first week uh, that the, the, the Christian faith kind of has these center circle issues that are circles that define what it means to be a person of faith, of a Christian. Like you have to believe certain things uh, to be a Christian, just like you have to believe certain things to be a Buddhist or a Muslim or a non-believer in anything. There are certain tenets you hold to. Uh, those center circle issues about what it means to be a Christian are the things we're talking about in this series. Uh, there's other second circle issues that kind of define denominations and movements and how we baptize and the way we do certain things. And then there's a third circle that is all kinds of stuff that have to do with church living. But those center circle issues define every follower of Christ and what they believe about Christ. And these are center circle issues on who Jesus was. So as we unpack these two kind of central ideas that Paul highlights, we are reminded that these are closed-handed center circle issues. And the first thing that Paul tells us in this text about who Jesus is, is he reminds us that Jesus Christ was this humble servant, this role of a servant, this role idea of humility. Um, again, look how Paul breaks down the what we call the incarnation, which is the idea that God became flesh, where an incarnation means to become flesh. When you order carne asada, burrito, or taco, that's one that is filled with meat, right? It's the idea of flesh. And so Paul breaks this idea of the incarnation down. And the first thing he said in verse 6 is that Jesus Christ is fully God, that he is fully God, look at verse 6 again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or um, a thing to be ignored. So Paul affirms this idea that Jesus Christ is continually in the form of God and equal with God. Now there are some key words that Paul uses here. The first word he uses that's very important here is this idea of being. Being in the form of God. The word being is a continual word, that he is continually God, that he never stops being God, that the Son of God was God, is God, and will always be God. He is continually God. This is important. When God the Son became human, when he took on human flesh, he did not stop being God. He did not cease from being God. Jesus was as much God on earth as he was when the Son of God spoke the earth into existence. The babe in Bethlehem is the creator God of the universe. <clears throat> the popular Christmas song that goes around this time of the year, and it's 
always has memes attached to it. And here's the song, uh, Mary, Did You Know, right? Now, whether you believe Mary knew or not, which is usually the memes associated with it, like Mary knew. Uh, but whether you believe Mary knew or not, one of the lines, one of the lyrics in that song is, Mary, did you know that when you kiss the face of Jesus, you kiss the face of God? That the babe in the manger is the creator of the universe. And we saw that. So being in the form of God, continually being God. And then that word form, important word. Uh, that word form comes from a word, the, the, the word morphe. Morphe is what makes you, you. We talked a lot about this in our omnipotence series. Whatever it is that makes you a human, right? You possess those things. Whatever it is that makes God, God, he possesses those things. And Paul says, Jesus possessed the things that make him God. Whatever it is that makes you a human are things that you have as a human. You can't get rid of those things and still be a human. The things that Jesus possessed, the morphe of God, is what made him God. Is this kind of outward expression of the inward the reality, the core of who you are, your nature, your personhood. It is why you are a human. Your morphe, your nature, is why you're a human and not a dog or a frog or a flower or a, I don't know, snow cone. I don't know why that made the list. Whatever it is that makes you you is what makes you human and not something else. The point is, Jesus Christ is the human expression of the essence of God. Whatever it is that makes God, God, Jesus possessed. He possessed it and displayed it. In his nature, his person, his character, Jesus is God. That means Jesus cannot not be God. Double negative to make my point. Jesus cannot not be God. He cannot stop being God. He was fully God. And that word form, being in the form of God, and this other important expression Paul uses in this verse, that he was equal with God, equality with God. As a human, Jesus Christ never stopped being equal with God. When John, the disciple, the gospel writer, when we did the belief project, the opening words of John's gospel is that he was with God and he was God. Did you know this is the claim that got Jesus in so much trouble? It's the claim that got Jesus in trouble with the, with the religious empire of his day, that he claimed to be equal with God. And it's eventually what caused him to be killed, to be murdered, because he claimed equality with God. So Paul says Jesus Christ is fully God. And in the same idea of him being this humble servant, he also reminds us in verse 7 that he's, the, that he's fully human. Not only is he fully God, Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So in this verse, Paul answers that question, how would God appear? How would he show up? If he comes in human form, how would he come? And he says, well, he became a man. He became a human. He became one of us. He was born in the likeness of men. That God the Son became an earthly son. That he added humanity. Now this is important. He added humanity without subtracting deity. He was still God. And he became human. He became 100% human while remaining 100% God at the same time. The God-man. It wasn't 50-50. It was 100% human, 100% God. And if you sit and think about that for a moment, and your mind is not just, Right? How does that even happen? I mean, our minds are blown by this idea. We can't wrap our minds around the idea of Jesus being 100% God 
100% human. As God, he never laid aside what, it, what makes him God. His nature, his personhood, his essence, his attributes. Those things made him God. He never laid those things aside. But as a human, he had to be nursed. He cried. He grew hungry. He scratched his knee. He got tired. Everything that makes us human, Jesus possessed. This is the mystery of the incarnation, of him becoming human. How could Jesus be both God and human at the same time? How could God the Son become one of us and yet maintain his deity? How could God the Creator make himself dependent on his creation? Let me quote for you one of the early church fathers, um, Augustine, who expresses the mystery this way. Man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might get hungry, that the fountain might grow thirsty, that the light would sleep, that the way would get tired on his journey, that the truth would be accused by false witnesses, that the teacher would be beaten with whips, that the foundation would be suspended on wood, that, the, that strength would grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life would eventually die. God, full, Jesus, fully God, fully human, at the same time, that when God appears on earth, he takes the form, he adds the form of his creation, that the creator becomes the creation, that he possesses both the form of God, the morphe of God, and the likeness of humans. Two natures, one person. That's why this is such a center circle issue. Can't be compromised in either direction. Fully God, fully human. But... What type of person did God adopt? What type of person did he become? It would seem if the Son of God came to earth that he would don the flesh of royalty, right? That he might be a great king or a powerful ruler or a mighty dignitary. That's what we should be expecting. That's what I would be expecting. But no. What did Paul say in the verse? He became a servant. Became a servant. No doubt most would expect him to be a part of the elite of society, the 1%, right? That he would be a king or a prince born to royal parents. Matter of fact, when the magi show up um, a couple of years later, uh, when Jesus is probably a toddler, they show up and they go to the king. Uh, they go to the king because they're expecting the Messiah to be born in a palace. Like if this is the king, then he's got to be living in a palace. So he would uh, be a king or a mighty ruler. Yet Paul informs us God the Son becomes a servant, a slave. For this reason, many rejected him, including his own people. He was not the Messiah they were anticipating. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. He was not a king. He was not a Roman slayer, right? He wasn't Maximus. Like, who are you? All I'm Maximus, right? Father of a slain child, all that stuff. No, he was not the Roman slayer. He was a servant. He adopted the role of a slave, Paul says. And his purpose was not to be recognized, not to be praised, that he did not seek the accolades or applause of humans. He was not trying to win friends or influence people. His goals were not self-promotion. No, he made himself of no reputation. He had a choice of how he would appear, and he chose serving. And Paul says, that's the mind of Christ. 
He chose to be a servant. Why did God choose servanthood? Well, notice the third step here in Paul's description of Christ's humiliation, this humbled servant. That he was fully God. He was fully human. In verse 8, he tells us that he was fully obedient, right? He took on human flesh and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a that the reason the Son of God became a servant was to fulfill this ultimate purpose, obedience unto death. Paul says he made himself nothing, that he humbled himself. The, the idea here is that he emptied himself. Instead of exploiting his deity for his advantage, he chose nothingness. He emptied himself. Now what that, what that does not mean, again is that he emptied himself of his deity. There was no subtracting of who he was as God. What it does mean is that by taking on human flesh, adding human flesh, he became flesh. He left his position, his rank, his privilege to take on servanthood. But not only does he become obedient, a servant, he stoops even lower. So think about this. God the Son enters earth, takes on human flesh, which again is a step down, right? King of the universe, creator of the world, becomes submissive, obedient. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but this idea of submission or obedience is not common for people who are in charge, okay? For the creators of the world, this idea of I'm going to be submissive to someone, something else, is not common. But the scriptures say he submits himself to the will of the Father. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He stoops even lower. He becomes obedient, but he comes obedient even unto death. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He stoops even lower. Not only does he become obedient, not only become obedient unto death, it's not just any death. It is the death of the cross. It is the cruelest, most abased form of death. He dies as an outcast, as a criminal. Notice the progression. Jesus Christ, who is equal with God, made himself nothing. He becomes a human. He takes on the role of an obedient servant. He suffers and then he bleeds out on a cross like a criminal. Paul's explanation here is the essence of the Christmas story. That God became human for the purpose of dying. Like if we see the babe in the manger, but we fail to recognize the servant on the cross, we've missed the point. We missed the point of the whole story. Christmas is about God's invasion into the world to save people from their sins. That's why the angel directs Joseph, who is confused and bewildered by this whole thing, he says, look, you're going to have a kid. You're not the father. This is a supernatural miracle. You've got to have faith. You've got to believe. And by the way, name him Jesus, because the name Jesus means Jehovah, the Lord, saves. And the reason you'll name him Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins. The idea of Jesus, the idea of God the Son becoming human was so that he might be a Savior, that he might forgive sins. And here's the good news for you. 
He is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. You're like, Devin, like, you don't understand how good of a sinner I am. Like, I'm great at it. I've got experience. I could add it to my resume. Like, great sinner. Wherever you are in that category, Jesus is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. For he came to save his people from their sins. As we celebrate his birth, we cannot overlook his death. Without his death, there is no Christmas. If Jesus is born in a stable and wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger and grows up to be a good man, but he does not die on the cross for sin, there is no reason for Christmas. Christmas points to Calvary. And it reminds us the babe became the perfect and final sacrifice. His supernatural birth points to his sacrificial death. Jesus Christ was born to die, a humble servant. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Because of this idea that Christ is a humble servant that bled out and died for our sins, Paul says something has happened. He's been given this name that Jesus Christ is this exalted Savior. And these, this last section of this powerful text is this idea that Christ is an exalted Savior. He says, therefore, in verse 9, because of what I just talked about, therefore, the result of this is, what has happened is, and again, notice the transition here that God now takes the initiative. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore, God takes the initiative and exalts him. And this is not just any kind of exaltation. This is super hyper exaltation. That he is, it is higher than any other. He has given him the name that is above every name. That no name is higher. No name is more important. No name is more noble. No name is more superior than the name of Jesus. I'm going to give you just a sampling of that. In Scripture, he's the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and end. King of kings, Lord of lords. Way truth and life. He is the door, the good shepherd, the vine, the bread of heaven, the living water, the light of the world. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is the lamb of God, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is Messiah, Emmanuel, son of God, son of man, Lord, savior, redeemer, rock of our salvation. He is the king of glory, the great I am, the master ruler, and the hope of our salvation. He has been given a name that is above every name. Whatever name comes to your mind when it comes to who you consider great or powerful or famous or culture shaping or world changing, whatever name comes to mind, the name of Jesus stands above that name. Therefore, God has given him a name above every name. And then Paul quotes from uh, Isaiah chapter 45 and Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, <laughs> every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul again quotes here from the prophet Isaiah, and he declares that the name of Jesus 
is exalted to the point that every knee of every living creature in heaven and earth and under the earth, that covers everyone, by the way, in the earth, above the earth, under the earth, in case I missed, right? Not just those on the earth, but above and below it. Paul says every living creature will one day bow in worship and adoration of this exalted name, that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Now what this meant to people living in the Roman Empire was significant. Because everywhere they went, they were under the obligation to say, Caesar is God or Nero is Lord. Whatever ruling sovereign in that part of the empire, was in, they were in their domain. They had to acknowledge Caesar is God. Caesar is Lord. Nero is Lord. And Paul says, I'm telling you, there's a name that's above the name of Caesar, above the name of Nero, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And you can just fill in the blank, right? We don't say Caesar is God or Nero is Lord, but you can just fill in the blank because we have a tendency to elevate people to that, to worship and follow and pursue and highlight and emphasize certain names, certain people. And Paul is saying, I'm telling you, there's only one name that every knee will bow to. And the vile, the vile mouth that cursed him, the skeptical tongue that mocked him, the unbelieving lips that denied him, every tongue of every person will one day confess Jesus is Lord. It is the quintessential statement of the follower of Jesus. He is Lord. He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the foundational confession of our faith. That to know Jesus is to worship Him as our Lord. As our King. He is Lord. And so like Mary, and like Joseph, and like the angels, and like the shepherds, and like the magi, we stand in this stream of confessional faith, and we confess with our tongues. We bow before Him in worship. We declare and recognize Him as Lord, and we proclaim Him the King of Kings. It's been happening from 2,000 years, from the time they arrived at the manger in the stable. We stand in that stream of believers and followers of Jesus, and we announce, we believe, Jesus is Lord. Every tongue will confess Him at some point. We have the opportunity and privilege to confess Him now, that He is Lord. He is Lord. So, whatever you think of Jesus, no matter how great or how trivial you imagine Jesus to be, I've got an announcement for you. No matter how great you imagine Jesus to be, He is better and greater and nobler and bigger and more superior and grander than you can even think or imagine. His name is above every name. And so we bow and we confess, and as like the angelic host that praised the babe of Bethlehem, as the shepherds knelt in adoration, as the Magi fell and worshipped him and presented their gifts, even so Jesus Christ will be exalted throughout all eternity. Now I want to end this message by reiterating some things that I noted when we walked through this text together back in our Philippians series. I think it's so relevant when I went back and revisited it to Christmas. And here's what I want to, to remind us of. This section, as core as it is to in our beliefs as Christians on who Jesus is, this section in this letter was written 
by a real pastor to real people in a real church in a real city. Seeking to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus in this culture around us? What does it mean to be light and darkness? What does it mean to follow Jesus as a community of faith? As a gathering of people who profess Jesus as Lord. That, that's this letter. It was written to real people. What does it mean to put one foot in front of the other in everyday life, living with other followers of Jesus, seeking to live in unity, seeking to be of the same mindset when it comes to matters of the faith, seeking to be an influence and a light in our culture and in our environment. And into that context, Paul utilizes the most vivid example possible, doesn't he? And he says, Jesus, who was fully God and fully human and entitled to the privileges of God, did not use his position for his own advantage. Instead, he humbled himself to the lowest rung on the ladder. And Paul encourages us, follow the example of Jesus. The one who had every right to take advantage of his status, but relinquished those rights for rebels who responded to his goodness and grace by abusing him and nailing him to a cross. Don't forget, Jesus was the greatest human to ever live and he was the humblest human to ever live. The greatest human to ever live and the humblest human to ever live. In Jesus, greatness and servanthood are not contradictory. They're compatible. Like, how counter-cultural is that? That's not defining those terms like we do. That's not defining it like we tend to. Greatness and servanthood. How greatest human ever lived could also be the person of greatest humility to ever live. Like, we can't wrap our minds around that because it's so opposite of how we live life and how everything around us says the opposite. And yet Jesus was unwilling to use his divine status and privileges for his own selfish agenda. Instead, he displayed his deity through service and sacrifice. Think about the dramatic contrast that Paul makes here. That Jesus willingly traveled from the form of God, the morphe of God, the image of God, that he willfully traveled from the form of God to death on a cross. And then think about Paul's challenge. Have the mind of Christ among yourselves, which is yours, by the way, in Christ. This text challenges us to take the daring step of conforming our own character to the example of Jesus by placing the interest of others ahead of our own. This is so challenging because from the moment we are born, we are programmed and urged by everything in us and everyone around us to get our needs met. As babies, as toddlers, as children, as teenagers, as adults, we are programmed to think and told by everyone around us, it is all about you. Right? It happens naturally. You don't have to teach a baby to cry when it's hungry. You don't have to teach a toddler to run up and want me, 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 mine, mine, mine. Happens naturally. 
Now, I'll tell you, it's heightened at a whole different level this time of the year. I mean, Santa Claus 101 is be a good person and get things. Be a bad person and don't get stuff. We've defined it, haven't we? Nice list, naughty list. Levi came home all upset from school one day last week because one of his buddies jokingly said to him, you're on the naughty list. I don't want to be on the naughty list. He didn't respond in a Christ-like way either, I can tell you. It is programmed in us. I found myself this week, we're going through all this COVID stuff, and Levi's just, I mean, once he started feeling back to normal, he's just bouncing off the walls, like not understanding why I can't like do this, do this, be around this person, all those things. And I found myself saying this to Levi, do you want to have Christmas with your brothers and your brother and your sisters? Do you want to celebrate Christmas? Because if you don't start doing this and stop doing this, we're going to have to cancel Christmas. Then I'm like backing up saying, I don't mean it like that. We're just wired to think that way, behave that way, act that way. We pursue the highest paying jobs. We buy the most comfortable home. We drive the best vehicles. We take the finest vacations possible. By the way, even if those temporary pleasures are beyond our financial capacity, we do those things. We are born with a sinful desire to pursue and get what we want, even if it is at the expense of others. Did you know as a society that we have to put rules in place to restrain the natural desire of humans to get what they want? when they want it, and however they want it. We have laws as a society for that very reason. I am hardwired to focus on my needs, my wants, my desires. And yet Jesus, fully human, displays the exact opposite of this human, this human drive. The one human who ever lived, who had the rights and privileges of God, never used his position for his own desires. He relinquished those rights. And he viewed his deity as an opportunity to serve, to put the interest of others above his own. He was not about getting, but giving, not being served, but serving, not dominating and controlling, but obeying and sacrificing. And Paul invites us to embrace and practice this incarnational attitude and demeanor toward others while everything and everyone around us screams and practices the opposite. How do we do it? How is this even possible? Hear the gospel in this. It is only remotely possible as the Holy Spirit does His work in our hearts and lives as we lean into Jesus, as we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. It is only possible through a grace-driven, moment-by-moment Jesus dependence. It does not happen by trying harder. It does not happen by conforming to the right set of rules. 
It does not happen by trying to get off the naughty list by your own moral behavior and onto the good list that somehow makes you acceptable before God. It only happens when our story collides with the story, the redemptive story of a God who became one of us so that we might have life. It only happens in the redemptive flow of the Christmas story. Have the mind of Christ, Paul writes. What's the mind of Christ? Fully God, fully human, who relinquished his rights to put the interest of others above himself so that our sins might be forgiven. How do we even begin to live in that? We only began to live in it by leaning into the one who made it possible. And as the Holy Spirit does his work in our lives, it helps us take those moment by moment, day by day steps toward Christ's faithfulness. Here's the good news for you. He is faithful when we are not. Like if you walk away from this message thinking, I got to do better, you miss the point. The point of the entire Christmas story, the entire gospel, is He has done everything necessary. Lean into it. Rest in it. Walk in it. Allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in your heart day by day as our story collides with the story. And in that collision, other stories, right? My story collides with your story. Your story collides with mine. And all of our stories as a local church in a first century letter is being written. All of our stories collide together into the story of the one who's made it all possible. So we celebrate the Christ of Christmas today. Fully God. Fully human. Laid down his rights. Death on a cross so that we might be sons and daughters of God.